Howdy, folks. This is Scott Parker, and you're listening to another episode of the ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast. And with me, as always, is our producer, Phil Circus. Hey, ZappaCast listeners, how are you? (laughs) And, of course, the man who put the bop in the bop shoe bop, the vaultmeister, Joe Travers. (laughs) What are we talking about today, Joe (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We have an historical project to, to, to hype this time around. That's for sure. Yeah, sure do. We we barely need to hype it because it's such a huge thing that everybody's talking about right now, but they haven't heard it yet. And Phil, we have heard it. We have heard it. <laughs> we've been living inside of it. We've for the been, past we've week. been living inside of it. <laughs> well, join the club. I've been living inside of it for months, you know, I know this is totally fascinating because of the way that how the project got off to a start and all that stuff. So we're talking, of course, about the Mother's 1971 box set, eight CDs, the 1971 touring bands. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. So I guess, why don't we begin here, Joe? Because two years ago, I got a call from you, and I've never heard you more excited about anything in my life. <laughs> and you were just like, dude, guess what? And I'm like, what, what? You know, you told me the story. Now, you know what I'm talking about. I do. Yes. I do. I totally remember. There wasn't that many people that I called. Ahmed no. was first, you know? Yeah. Yep. And that just goes to show you how special you are to me, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciated this because I have, you know, like this this tape is just something that I never thought I would hear in my lifetime. But do you want to pick up the story? Well, you know, I never took the time and effort to digitally preserve and transfer the original one-inch, eight-track masters of the Rainbow Show, which live in the vault, obviously, because, you know, Frank released sections of that show on various releases. Sure. And um, when COVID happened, obviously, I found myself with so much extra time with the world shut down and everything. And so I really went for it. I really spent a lot of time diving into tapes that I knew were in the vault because I'd seen them uh, for so long but just didn't have the time to get to yet and the rainbow tapes were you know perfect as far as that kind of thing that the stuff that uh i always see hanging out on the shelf but never really spent the time to to document so i finally did and i knew obviously about the history of that show and what had happened at the end and i also knew about what frank had sent in the liner notes to you can't sit on stage anymore volume three where you know that the incident that happened at the end of the show was not captured on tape and had it been he would have released it yep so i wasn't expecting to hear what i heard at the end of the last reel and I, it was a, I, I hate to interrupt you joe no, go but ahead. I, I feel like this story goes back even further sometime after the actual show and sometime in the 80s when scott made a phone call <laughs> oh yes <laughs> can you tell us about this phone call scott yes th- this was the interesting thing because it would probably be around 1991 that I got a call from uh, my friend who worked over at Barfco, and he told me, call 818-PUMPKIN at this time, which I think was late afternoon or maybe early evening my time, and Frank is going to be answering the phone for like two hours or something like that. It's a total like kind of surprise thing. So I called. And uh, we're going to try to find this tape so that I can, you guys can hear it, I hope. But, but the only question that I really got to blurt out is, 
is it true that that the tapes of the rainbow run out before the incident happened? And Frank just, you know, he's very gracious and he's he just said yes. The the end of the show is not on the tapes, is basically what he says. And so I just said, Okay, thank you. And that was kind <laughs> it. And I'm so sure nervous. 99% of the listeners know the incident is that of Frank getting pushed right. off the stage by yeah. a yes. psychotic individual at the yes. end of the show. And seriously, very seriously injured. So so when I get this call from Joe, I mean, you know, yeah. this is like bolt of lightning out of the blue. I was transferring them like in real time, like, the, I, you know, the reels are rolling. And I and, you know, I was I, once yeah. we got to that section of the tape and I heard it, I thought, oh, my God, was that what I thought it was like? Oh, I couldn't believe it. Like, I just could not believe it. And uh, so, of course, I went to the transfer and I was in Pro Tools listening to it and soloing up every track. And I thought, oh, my God, that has to be it. So I called Amit and I was like, Amit, you are not going to believe what I think I just discovered. And um, so, of course, this leaves many questions as to why Frank said what he said. And uh, I have theories. Yes, yes. I've been <laughs> I've been trying to figure out like over the last couple of days since we've been talking about this, like trying to figure out what those theories might be. Okay, so here's 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 what it is. Here's what I think happened. Yeah. So there is the one inch eight track masters, right? And then in the vault there are also quarter inch stereo reel to reels. So I documented the one inch a track and then I also documented the quarter inch reel to reels. And I, you know, come to find out that the quarter inch reel to reel tapes, which I thought they were just line mixes that were being run off in real time at the same time that the one inch a track was rolling. So in other words, you had two machines capturing the show, a stereo machine and the a track machine. Yes. But that's not true. The, the reel to reel tapes were actually mixes of the a track tape and i think that they were just mixes that barry keen and bob hughes did when they still had the masters in their possession yeah so in other words they just ran off a stereo mix for frank so that he could hear it you know but on the last reel of the of the reel to reels after i want to hold your hand and everyone says good night it fades out Ah, so so the original engineers that did the uh, the the rough mix for Frank, you know, on these reel to reels, they didn't include the incident. They just faded it out because they didn't hear it. They didn't know. I don't know what happened with them, but all I can tell you is that it fades out when the when the crowd is clapping, it fades out and it's not there. Yeah. So either Frank heard that and just assumed that it wasn't on the A track. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's part one of my theory. The second part of my theory is, is that when they were doing the remixes for albums like Volume 3, You Can't Sit On Stage Anymore, mm-hmm. and Playground Psychotics, and all the other stuff that the Rainbow Chunks have been released on, that the engineers that worked for Frank, they didn't identify the end of that reel as being the incident and basically just told Frank, it's not there. And Frank uh, it took their word for it. Frank wasn't in the studio. He just, you know, kind of told them what to do and was on to other things. Never heard it and assumed that it wasn't there as well and just took their word for it. That's second part of my theory. Yeah. The third part of the theory, <laughs> and this is one that I don't believe, is that he just 
lied. Yeah. But Frank's Frank's not a liar. No. You know, he he was pretty damn truthful. And I think that if he really did know that it was there, then he wouldn't have said, if it was there, I would have released yep. it. I mean, maybe he just didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to deal with mm-hmm. it. He didn't want to. But uh, somehow didn't want the fans to think that. So he was kind of, you know, oh, I would have put it out if it was there, but it's not there. But but really it was there. I don't believe that to be true. But yeah. that's the only other thing that I can think of, you know, other than the other two things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a big, heavy, emotional thing, you know, for, for I'm sure for the rest of his life, it would have been this big, heavy, emotional thing. So it did occur to me that maybe he simply didn't want to say that he had it. But on the other hand, right. he's got no reason really to even bring it up really in the liner notes um, other than, you know, like the people who will say, well, where's the incident? But right. I don't think anybody would have expected him to put it on there necessarily, you know, so he's got no real reason to say that if it's not true. So, you know, I, I don't think he lied about it. I think of those three theories, the first one is very plausible. The second one is very, very plausible that he simply took their word for it. And yeah, I yep. said to, well, the one person I've talked to about it, which is my wife. And I said, if you don't know what it is, all you know when you hear it is that something big just happened. It's sudden and it's violent. You say in the liner notes, like it's a chilling, you know, you were, it was chilling to hear. And it yes. really is because you've never heard an audience go so completely silent. And I wasn't expecting it to be there. Yeah. No, that's what, oh my you know? God. So when I heard it, I was like, is that what I think it is? And so I, you know, I, ta- I called Amen, and I called you. And then a couple days later, or maybe a day later, I called Ian Underwood. Oh, yeah. And I said, Ian, this is what I'm hearing on these tapes. Do you think that that's what it is? And Ian said, absolutely, that's what it is. Yep. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe that it's there. Like, I can't believe that Frank didn't know it was there. I just can't believe it. I wonder but, what his reaction would have been to hearing it. I mean, it it is really kind of shocking, you know, to hear it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm sitting there like waiting for, you know, as it goes through the I want to hold your hand. And then to the encore, I'm like sitting there waiting. I'm like actively, ner- you know, actually nervous, like waiting for it to happen. <laughs> and as detailed in the liner notes, I think what Herbie just throws one punch and it breaks his nose. The guy's nose. Yeah. Ian, Ian heard that. He definitely oh, heard it. God. Well, that's just one of the many historical points one. of the Mother's 1971. <laughs> but but that's how this thing gets started. You know, it, it kind of starts snowballing from, from discovering the rainbow. But that's not all, boys and girls, because... <laughs> I can't believe uh, Frank ever played King Kong again after that time. Oh, the fire and then getting, yeah. I know they played I Want to Hold Your Hand, but it was it was after a monster version of King Kong. Mm-hmm. But right at the beginning of King Kong and the Rainbow, I think you can hear, was it Howard saying, like, remember ha- what happened the last time we played this? Yes. Yeah. Which was Montreux. Yep. Yes, exactly. Yes. And that was a request by, the, by a fan in the audience, you know, that he didn't want to play King Kong, but someone requested it. And he said, well, that's your tough luck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, It's such a great line. When you mentioned that this crazy incident was preserved on tape, I was worried, like, am I going to be able to listen to this set? Because, like, it's going to be heart wrenching. And I mean, first of all, it's so 
amazing that the show even happened coming out, you know, with all rented equipment coming after the last disaster. Um, another hindrance was like, there wasn't enough time for a sound check. So he was kind of sound checking through the first portion of the show. Yep. And the show was fire. It's, it's so incredibly strong. Yeah. It almost sounds like, uh, he was going in directions like he had never gone before. Yep. The playing is so incredible with the 71 band. They are such an incredibly tight unit. Yeah, especially at that point because they had been on tour for so long, you know. So they they had the repertoire pretty nailed by then. And then Frank's playing a Telecaster, which is always really cool because, mm-hmm. like, you know, I love it when Frank played a Tele. You know that he played a Tele on Freak Out? Yeah, he had that... Um... Oh God! What was the tele? Was it a white Telecaster or something? Yeah, that it was. I thought it was a rented Telecaster, but uh, I, I just know that like it's very rare that yeah. Frank Frank played a Tele on recordings, and to hear him, you know, playing that Tele on the Rainbow Show is pretty damn cool. You know? Yeah, and he he conjures up some. I mean, the beginning of Big Swifty, I think, might have. I I can imagine that when Frank was recovering from the incident, that he's sitting there listening to this tape, and he hears the. He hears that bit in the guitar solo and just decides to write, you know, work that into an arrangement, you know, and that's how Big Swifty starts. Obviously, the roots of um, Sleep Dirt. Sleep Dirt. were in there, yeah. too. But my God. So you find the rainbow tape. Does that get the project rolling or was it something that you wanted to include after you already knew you wanted to do a 50th anniversary on the 71 stuff? I think when Amit and I were talking about anniversary projects for the year, I said, well, you know, if we were going to do a 50th anniversary of the 1971 band, here's the available tapes that we have. Yep. And then, you know, obviously the Fillmore tapes could have been their own release. Oh, and sure. the And the Rainbow tapes could have been its own release. But we made the decision to combine everything and make a big, huge uh, box. And um, so... That's what we ended up doing. And of course, the hybrid concert was is fun to throw in there and the other things that we, you yeah. know, the, the bonus tracks that we could throw in there. And so, um, yeah, it makes for a pretty large historical entry in the in the catalog. Um, just to get this out of the way, because a number of people have have asked about it, about the Pauly Pavilion show, because, you know, a lot of people have said, well, where's like this isn't enough, you know, somehow where's the Pauly Pavilion? Well, the problem with the Pauly Pavilion show is kind of the same problem that you had to deal with with the Fillmore tapes in that you don't have all of the Pauly Pavilion show together right now, right? Right. Frank dispersed this through yeah. lots of other projects. The ra- razor blade syndrome. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'll ever find all of the Pauly Pavilion show. Um, I hope I do, actually. Um, but... I've got a pretty good handle on what's in the vault by now. Yeah. And and I have not uh, run across. Now, now that's not to say that I haven't found some unreleased stuff from the Poly Pavilion show, Masters, the four-track source material, but I haven't found all of it. And um, I think that it would just be better to wait and uh, have that be uh, a, future, a future project. I mean, this box set, absolutely does what it's supposed to do which is celebrate this band and celebrate the anniversary of the band and there's so much material there so i i think that um down the road someday 
that uh, you know, just another band from LA and uh, the Poly Pavilion show itself will get you know some special love. But that's just we have to have the right stuff in order to do it. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I never really thought. I mean, first of all, yeah, I never thought I'd hear the the complete Rainbow concert in my lifetime. I really never thought that. But I really, really never thought I'd hear all four of the Fillmore shows. Yeah. And the original album, I think it's safe to say, isn't the most high fidelity. And we've talked about this on the show. It's not the most high fidelity of albums. I think it's kind of presented in a way that's sort of meant to mimic bootlegs. And, you know, I think that I think that's what the packaging was about and kind of the sound quality sort of reflected that. I don't know intentionally or not, but the way these tapes sound. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with Barry Keene because he really was a fantastic recording engineer. He was very dynamic, very true to what was happening on the stage and, uh, you know, captured things really well. Again, the Fillmore tapes in the vault are not complete when it comes to the 16 track masters. Yes. Frank was cutting them up and uh, we, not all of it was saved. I I can just tell you right now about 70% of the show is there and the rest of it, we have to thank so much that Barry was running off a stereo line mix at the, in real time because all of the missing gaps on the 16 track were filled in with the PA tape, you know, the line tape. And uh and because of that, we were a- we were literally able to give you all four shows complete from beginning to end yep. with no missing sections at all. And that's amazing. I didn't think that we would be able to do that, but we did it. It sounds pretty seamless. Yeah, thankfully uh Barry's, you know, line mix was really good sounding too. You know, the the, the panning of the instruments and the voices and stuff are different. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you could definitely hear when the transitions hamp up. But th- but thankfully, because you know John Polito is a is really great as a mastering engineer, and um, and you know my editing skills and the mixing skills of Craig Parker Adams. I mean that stuff really turned out pretty Shout nice. Out to I Craig Parker Adams. Yeah, yes. yeah, we love him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, you know this this album went from one of the crummiest sounding Frank Zappa albums that you know. Material I love. It's one of my favorites, but it is shot to the top of the audiophile spectrum. Like it is, it is so incredibly enjoyable to sit and listen to this. Like you, at times I feel like I'm front row center. At times yep. I feel like I'm in in Ainsley's kick drum because <laughs> <laughs> yep. There there is a night and day difference. Yep. Also, like blown away with what Frank did to edit together. The original album and not realizing like I, he took bits from those four shows yeah, and yeah. mixed them all together like yep. within the same tracks yeah that's within, a, that's within exactly the same songs right. you know he was doing that with a friggin' razor blade he was so good at that shit that is a really amazing work of art that album it is unbelievable to think that it sounds the way that it does when you get to hear how good the, the original master tapes sound yeah like I said, like we had discussed before in the last podcast, it's just funny to me the the sonic template that was coming out of Whitney Studios in in June of 1971, and and that uh, you know a lot of that was you know happening when they were mixing Two Hundred Motels and the Fillmore East album. It's just that they had this setup, they had this thing happening, 
with Toby and Barry and Frank in there. And it was just like very mid rangey, very muddy, very weird with some reverb on the vocals, but like everything else was just kind of like just contained and, and just kind of weird. It's just, I, I don't know. But now the Fillmore shows sound <laughs> pretty damn incredible. Jim Pond's bass has bass. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's for I mean, sure. You know, like you, when you hear the clarity of the the original tapes, you you have to wonder, you know, it almost sounds like they worked hard to get it to sound that bad on the original album. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's 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 you know, Frank must have just really liked the way that the stuff was sounding to him in the studio, but yeah. Uh, it's it's thankfully that didn't last long. And you know, you want to talk about we should talk about um since we're talking about mixing and we're talking about Craig and and how great that stuff. We should really talk about Eddie Kramer at this point. No discussion of the rainbow should be uh, left without uh, mentioning Eddie Kramer, who um, you've wanted to get involved in. And I know this because we've talked about it. You've wanted to get him involved for years. Yeah. Well, you know, he he really he loved Frank and, and knew Gail. And he had some really great pictures that he shot of the mothers at the Fillmore East and he was always sending us these pictures and, you know, saying, hey, and stuff. And I said to Gil, we should use Eddie, you know, because, I mean, the guy has done such amazing stuff in his career. If you, th- I mean, a-, a lot of the music that I love yep, and a lot of records that I have come to love over, you know, that I grew up with, obviously, Led Zeppelin and Kiss and, and Angel. Angel. And, yeah. And so many, so many other things that he's done. Of course, Hendrix and. And I thought, you know, uh, he never had the chance to work with Frank mm-hmm. other than, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, but he actually tracked Frank at the Miami Pop Festival. You know, I didn't know that he tracked him there. He I, tracked him. So we have those tapes in the vault. And really? Ed, yeah. And Eddie tracked him, but he never mixed anything for Frank, you know? So is the version of King Kong on Uncle Me, is that an Eddie Kramer recording? That's a good question. The that's a good pit. question uh, yeah. because that's a mono recording. Uh, yeah. That that uh, so I think that there was a mono quarter inch tape rolling, and then there was also one inch eight track rolling. Okay. So I don't know. He he probably was responsible for all that stuff, but I I'm not sure if that mono tape because uh, he definitely didn't get credited on Uncle Meat for mixing that. No. You know, or, or or recording it. I mean, live. Yeah. So I'm not sure, but. He never really had the chance to mix anything during Frank's, you know, they never worked together during Frank's lifetime. And uh, unfortunately, through Gail's lifetime, too, because we had always been toying with the idea, but we just never really got around to it. And it just didn't happen. And so finally, when it came time for the Rainbow Show, I said to Amit and everybody, I was like, you know, we really should see if Eddie Kramer would be available. And thankfully, he was. Yeah, so, you know, he had the uh, opportunity to mix this historical show, and um, what he did with them was great. He did some really special things in there. Like, when you guys get the chance to really listen to it, you'll hear that in between the um, songs, when other band members are talking, he has a, he had a really good way of bringing out the dialogue on stage between Mark and Howard and Frank, and you can hear the things that are being said. And it's cool the way that he did that. And um, you can hear traces of his personal approach EQ-wise to like, I mean, let me put it to you this way. I'm a drummer, and you can hear 
similarities in drum sounds between the Kiss records and the Angel records and the Zeppelin records. And you just you can hear it because Eddie has certain things mm-hmm. that that he's you know known for sonically. And it was cool to be able to hear some of those things in the Rainbow show. I mean, they're there. You can, you know, you can definitely hear it. So um, I was happy with the final turnout of uh, how it went. And he was lovely to work with. And uh, we're really proud to have have been a part of this. That's great. Could you possibly use him in the future? Sure. Like, like say to, oh, I don't know, mix the The Miami Pop Pop Festival. (laughs) Why not? I mean, he tracked it. He tracked it. So yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, my my daughter goes, I have to take my daughter back and forth to work at the moment every day. And, you know, every time she gets in the car, there's a different Fillmore show playing. And, you know, <laughs> be, be honest, there's a different version of Billy the Mountain. Playing. There's a different version of Billy the Mountain. The good thing is my daughter loves Billy the Mountain. Like she knows, like, you know, her and I can do, you know, we do the vocals like, you know, or, you know, sing along with it. <laughs> So, you know, so she doesn't mind that, but, but my God, you know, like this is uh, some serious level of your soaking in it, you know, fanaticism going on here with these, uh, you know, oral worship of these uh, tapes. (laughs) Let's talk about Billy the Mountain for a second. Yes. Okay. So Phil. Yes. Here's the deal. (laughs) (laughs) So. You know, when you were mentioning how Frank constructed the Fillmore album, how he was taking the best bits uh, at the time from all four shows and created that album. Well, that same approach is how he created the first cut of uh, what I am calling the original Billy the Mountain. Mm -hmm. That was the Billy the Mountain that was going to be on the double album set of just another band from LA before Mm -hmm. it was truncated down to a single LP. Now the double LP at one point consisted of this side. One was side two of the, just another band from LA that we know and love. And then side two of the double album set was the Fillmore Billy, the mountain edited and overdubbed and sweetened by Frank during the mixing sessions of the Fillmore album. Okay. Then side three of the double album has leaked out into the collector's circles. And so has side four, mm-hmm. but side two never did. So I found out, of course, during the research that side two is the Fillmore, but Frank switched to the poly pavilion version of Billy the mountain for side three of just another band from LA and bailed on the Fillmore version that he had uh, edited together mm. and, and, you know, with all the overdubs and sweetening and stuff. So, for the vinyl expanded version of <laughs> Fillmore East, June 71, that is coming out, we are including the original Billy the Mountain version that he cut from the Fillmore tapes oh with the overdubs God. and the sweetening. Yes, it's not on the CD because the CD is completely remixed, and, and the CD approach was we are going to present the Fillmore tapes live with no overdubs as it happened Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and remixed, but the vinyl we wanted to make just a little something special for, and so um, that's why we included the original Billy the Mountain in the vinyl, as it would have been half of it would have been on oh. the Just Another Band from LA double album. I I can't wait to hear. Oh this. my! And I was just about to ask, how oh can I God. get the sweetened version? Frank edited <laughs> Billy the Mountain yeah. 
yes, I can get it in March or hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I literally can't wait to hear it because, you know, that's one of those, like one of the things that really fascinates me are these um, unreleased projects. And, you know, everybody who's ever listened to the show knows that I'm completely obsessed with the 1969 12 LP box. Yep. History and collected improvisations and mother's invention. And, um, but things like this, like the, the unreleased two LP, just another band from LA or the two LP Zuda lures is another right. example of this mm-hmm. crush all boxes, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I never thought I would hear the beginning of this because if you look online, most people assume that the first record of this would have been what was side two of just an, the release, just another band from LA. And everybody assumes that um, side two, including myself was the Pauly pavilion, maybe right. a, an extended edit of it. That's not true. That's right. Exactly. And that just blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and, you know, there's overdubbed vocals, there's overdubbed pipe organ, there's overdubbed piano. Mm. So it's really treated and it's, and, you know, it's, it's like, it's really great. It's like the studio version of Billy the mountain that never existed that we've never heard before. Really? Oh, you know, my God, that's so killer. Yeah. <laughs> As I li- listened to, umpteen versions of billy the mountain this past week. no f- how many four we have five many, i think five five yeah, yeah five yeah, on five. this box i wondered like what is the closest thing in the vault to a studio version of billy the mountain and that's it and it's coming that's really out on, it. the, on the vinyl yeah. yep that's Amazing. really it yeah get it while it's hot because we don't know how long these vinyl uh editions are going to stay in print man because things are just not looking good for vinyl production these days. It's just, it's just, it's just unbelievable how the demand for the format and what COVID and the supply chain things that have, you know, affected all of that has made it so difficult for vinyl to exist. So get it while it's happening now. Otherwise it's, it's just not going to be around long. So, well, that's what we were talking about recently when we were saying it almost is like, the way that the um, the vinyl and and the CDs are almost sort of without meaning to be limited editions. Well, yeah, and that's right. And and physical product is just being affected no matter what. And so yep. I don't know what Universal's plan is, but all I can say is is that if any of the vinyl titles get a repress, it's a friggin' blessing. So yeah. you really have to get the stuff now. You know, if you see the vinyl, you have to grab the vinyl. <laughs> One of the very, very cool things, one of the many very, very cool things about the box is the hybrid concert. So we we have to hear the story of the hybrid concert. But when I I hadn't been looking at the track list. So when I heard them do things like My Boyfriend's Back and, and Tiny Sick Tears, I was just like just dumbfounded by that. So the hybrid shows have a very interesting backstory. Yeah, totally. And I was really excited to hear those songs come come blasting out yeah. of the speakers when I was transferring them because the tape boxes do not have what, what the songs were on them. So it's a complete mystery, right? So when you put the tapes on the machine, I'm identifying it in real time as it's happening. And I yeah. was very excited to hear those songs come out because, like, you know, those are rare. That, that didn't get played that much, I don't think. But the deal is, is that the um, there were three cities in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Scranton, and Pittsburgh. Yep. 1971 tapes, May, right before the Fillmore shows happen. And those tapes are in the vault. And it seems to be that those are the 
first and earliest tapes in the vault that were saved that were recorded on a four-track machine, which I'm assuming was a new purchase for Frank at that time, the Scully four-track yep. that he would take. He would go on to take on the road and document the shows for all of the 70s, all the way up until 1979 that okay. that machine was used to make four-track documents of the shows if the budget would allow or if the union wouldn't rake them over the coals to use it. Yeah, And so um, it seems, though, that these three cities were the first shows ever recorded by this machine, which had to have been a new purchase. And uh, of those three uh, cities that I mentioned, the Harrisburg show was the best-sounding one of the three, and then Scranton came in next. And so uh, between the Harrisburg and the Scranton shows, I chose all of the best parts, you know, the best, most significant performances and blended them together so that you have this kind of like full concert experience between the two. And uh, it's pretty, you know, it's I didn't edit back and forth at all. There's only one edit where I go in the middle of Billy the Mountain from uh, Harrisburg to Scranton and then it, and then it stays in Scranton. So it's yeah. all Harrisburg mm-hmm. and then goes to Scranton and stays there. Uh, but again, you have to remember that Frank was chopping this shit up. Yeah. So I had I had to find it all and then assemble it in sequence <laughs> in Pro Tools in order for us to get this experience. So historically, it's crazy to think that this machine appears in Pennsylvania and then goes away and doesn't come back until the Petit Wazoo tour. Mm-hmm. Because wow. Frank didn't use the four track on any of the Grand Wazoo eight dates that were, you know, that, that happened. He didn't take the machine with him then. Maybe it just didn't have the facility. Maybe he didn't have a sound man. You know, I have no idea, but, um, because the Wazoo show in Boston was recorded by a local company in Boston. Oh, really? Yeah. It it was live, live to two track. And that's what made that 2007 CD. Mm -hmm. And so the other shows, if they were recorded, they weren't saved. Yeah. And uh, but the Petit Wazoo shows are all, you know, pretty much all there. Every show was recorded, whether it was saved or not. It's, you know, it was there. So, um, yeah, those Pennsylvania shows in 1971 seemed to be the very first four track shows ever found in the vault from Frank's personal machine. You know, it's it's pretty impressive, you know, in terms of quality uh, just for being a new machine. And they, you know, they're trying to come to, you know, grips with this thing and. You know, it it sounds great. I mean, I I really love that sequence. You know, with the with the like I mentioned with the my boyfriend's back and tiny sick tears because the old mothers used to play that sequence all the yeah. time, and um, then the you know the the so called MOI reunion from 1970 that band uh, that played the Pauly Pavilion with uh, Zubameda and the LA Phil, you know, they did it there too. So to hear this band doing it. It just, yeah. you know, it's another one of those mind-blowing moments, you know. I think they did it at the Garrick, too. Yeah, they did. Yeah, it was one of their their set pieces at the Garrick. So, and is know. it also in the Sweden 67 tapes? Uh, yes. Um, one of the shows they do it. So Tis the season to be jelly, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's Stockholm. <laughs> yep. Right. So, <laughs> Which, by the way, is the greatest document of the 67 band that there is. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, there is there is not a better sounding recording of that '67 tour than that's those Sweden tapes. That is the greatest bootleg ever. That, 
that was done. Yeah, that was done for radio. So and he was sick. He and was he was sick, sick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't sick. know. Did he? Did he actually finish the King Kong? That's there. You know. Well, no, he was there for. It can't happen here. But then you know he was sitting on a chair during that show because he was sick. So he'd gotten food poisoning. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's just that, yeah, it's an incredibly good, you know, we have no tapes from the Garrick, you know, but we do have that. <laughs> so. I know. I know. That really is the definitive document of what that band with Billy Mundy on drums sounded like live in the first tour of Europe. Yep. That's yeah. really the best. And they were a hot band. Well, we need to talk about the John Lennon, Yoko Ono thing. Big we need time. To talk about yes. That. So, you know, this story is pretty damn rewarding. Um, as we all know, through history, we've known that Frank and John had a verbal agreement that Frank would give John Lennon a copy of the multi-track tape uh, for his use and that they both would release whatever they wanted to release from their from their performance together. Okay, so, mm -hmm. and sometime in New York City came out, and Frank was pissed off because he didn't get credited for his own friggin' tune, yep. and that was kind of uncool of John to do that. And the, the thing is, is that the tapes, the original multi-track tape, uh, the tape box was returned to Frank when he uh, got all the rights to his master tapes back in the early 80s after a lawsuit. But inside the tape box of the John Lennon Encore tape was not the tape. It was it was somebody had taken the, the John tape and stolen it and put something else in the box and replaced it with some stupid tape that has, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not what it is. Mm -hmm. So sadly... Frank never received the original master tape of the of the Lennon Encore to his vault. So I thought, well, I know that there was, you know, two track line, you know, PA mixes that were run off by Barry Keene at the same time. Let me go to there and hopefully it'll be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I went to the tape box and I went to the reel and the reel was half empty. And on the back of the tape box, it says removed and given to John Lennon. Oh, so so the Lennon estate not only had a copy of the 16 track, but Frank also gave them the two track line mix. I don't know why, but he did. So that left Frank with nothing. He didn't have anything left in his vault of that other than what he mixed and edited when he did have the 16 track tapes at his disposal in 1971. Mm -hmm. before yeah. they were stolen and that is what is on playground psychotics interesting yes so in order for us to be able to include the encore remixed and unedited we had to get that 16 track copy that was given to the Lennon estate and uh, at least a year and a half to two years before we decided to uh, do this 50th anniversary, I told Amit, I said, we got to get the tape. Somebody's got to reach out to the John Lennon estate and help us, you know, state our case. So long story short, they came through, thankfully, through Universal and through um, the Lennon estate. They were so kind that they came through and they gave us a high-res uh, digital copy of what Frank gave them, the safety, uh, back in 1971. And so thanks to them, we were able to remix and keep the shows completely intact for this release. So 
Uh, and, and it's amazing to think that after all these years, that uh, performance is finally back into the vault. So wow, that it's an incredible story, and the the tape sounds so good. You know, like that just as you know, obviously it's as good as the rest of the film or stuff. But you know, I, we're all used to hearing the the playground psychotics tape is fine. You know, it, mm-hmm. it sounds it sounds good. Um, the original John Lennon mix is horrible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like and the various audience and there's also a video of that performance floating out there. The Gail once asked me to find out who recorded that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, um, she used her favorite thing to she used to say to me is uh, favor me with a favor. <laughs> Sounds like Gail. I love That's her. That's Gail. So, um, so we're used to hearing it. You know, playground psychotics aside, we're used to hearing it in not high def, high definition sound. Let's say, but this is like night and day, even from playground psychotics. It's you know a, an incredibly good mix and an incredibly good you know like so crystal clear. What's really yeah. fun in this mix is to listen to John Lennon's guitar. And yeah, you can you can actually pick it out in this mix, which is really yeah. cool. Yeah, I've never yeah. really heard it before in that way. You know, it was pretty much all Frank before. Yeah, and because uh, they had to make a channel available on the 16 track for for John's guitar, so they had to sacrifice one of the channels on the drum uh, assignment. So instead of it being kick, snare, and then stereo left and right for the tom toms and cymbals they had to sacrifice one of those stereo tracks. So that means that the drums are basically mono for the fourth show. So you get three shows of stereo drums and the fourth show was mono drums. (laughs) For that purpose. Yeah, for that purpose. But, you know, the original mix that Frank made when he did have the tapes in 1971 Mm -hmm. and in its original sonic state right from the tape, is what is released on the three LP extended Fillmore wow, anniversary wow. vinyl, the vinyl version. So the vinyl version has the original mix and edit of the Lennon encore, uh, the original Billy the Mountain and King Kong solos, which was uh, also mixed during the sessions and never, never issued. So those are all period perfect mixes. Wow. When is that going to be available? All at the same time. I think it's March. Oh, in March. March. March 16th or 18th or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I literally can't wait for for that. I mean, I just... So, record one is obviously the original album. Right. Sides three through six are the original mixes of the Lennon, the King Kong, the Billy, and then on side six... One, two, three, four. Yeah. On the last side is um, some of those outtakes, like the ad... And the yeah. out takes, oh, and Tears Began to Fall single, which is completely super rare. Uh, for those of you who are interested in knowing the, uh, the the small details about that, that master tape is not in the vault. And we did a needle drop for <laughs> the Tears Began to Fall and Junior Mint's Boogie. And thanks to the wonderful uh, sonic audio restoration abilities of John Polito, we have a needle drop that sounds like a master tape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's so cool. it's perfect. And we talked about it, actually, when you were trying to find a, like a, perf- a pristine copy of the single. And the one that I found in my collection was the British copy. But 
those are actually, you know, that's a bad mastering. That's job right. On that, it's right? really brittle, really brittle. Yeah. So, so you needed to have the American and you got a pristine copy of the 45. That's, you know, not the easiest thing to find. It's rare. How about this, Phil, for a little uh, inside scoop on mastering? <laughs> yes. Did you know that the bizarre blue label versions of the Fillmore album, the very first original pressings of the Fillmore East album, Mm-hmm. At the beginning of side two, that Willie the Pimp, that is supposed to fade in. Yeah. And the original, right, right. The, they made a mastering error on the Blue Label Bazaar. It starts dead on. It just, it just, yeah, it just oh, crashes wow. in. But subsequent represses later, they fixed it. And when Frank did it for his old Masters series, you know, in the 80s, he also did the fade in as he wanted it. Yeah. So, yep. you know, there is there are there is people out there, uh, Mike Keneally, that uh, d- <laughs> wants to hear what's that grew up with the non faded version of uh, side two. But I had to do what it said on the master tape because that's what Frank wanted. So it says yeah. fade in right here. And so, oh, wow. Yeah. So. <laughs> so my hot take after spending a week with this box is. It is such a guitar box, but not maybe a way you think of Frank with guitar, because you can hear it so well. You can hear the written guitar lines. You can hear the rhythm lines or his rhythm playing, which is I love to hear Frank play rhythm. It's so very underrated and uh, incredible solos. So like Mm -hmm. be prepared to be have your mind blown a million different ways with Frank's guitar on this box. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to hear the Willie, the both Willie, the pimps unedited. Yes. Yeah, because that transition from the segue from um, Latex Solar Beef into Willie the Pimp might be my favorite. It's definitely in the top five of my favorite Zappa transitions ever. I never get tired of hearing it. It just gets me every time. Yeah. It's so sinister. It's, it's, <laughs> it's bitching. And the version of Willie the Pimp that ends side one is not the same version that starts side yeah. two. Because That's right. He, he goes different to a different show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is so much amazing with the guitar solos in Billy the Mountain and in King yes. Kong. And there's a, there's a version of uh, Chunga's on this box. That's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Interesting, interesting version of Chunga too, because yeah. they seem to play it very simple. They don't do the, there's two riffs in Chunga's Revenge yeah. that, that you're supposed to play. And they only play the first riff every right. single time. Yeah. But all these different Billy the Mountains that are on this box set, that's mm-hmm. the gem is all the solos in the middle yeah. of them because yeah. it's, it's different every one. So it's just, it's great. And yeah. And I mean, you know, Bob I, Harris's I, solos. Yeah. yeah Bob, well, well, it's either Bob or it's Ian or it's Frank, you know, and, yeah. and it switches all the time. So it's, it's fantastic. Am I wrong about this? I, I actually think that musically it's a sharper band than the 1970 mothers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I hate almost to, hate to say that because I love George Duke so much, but I, like, I do too. Yeah, it's true. It's true. They had, they had gelled that much more by seventy one. Well, a lot of that has to do with Jim Pons, I think. And yeah. and, and you know, I'm really looking forward to the Jim Pons uh, upcoming Zappacast. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. He was really a part of the Zappa world in such a in such an important time for uh, for Frank. You know. Yeah. With that whole 200 Motels thing going on and, and 
you know, and all the stuff that happened to the mothers in 1971, you know, hmm. uh, the, the amazing amount of touring. And then of course the Montreux and then the incident at rainbow. I mean, Jim was there for all of that. That's yeah. a lot of stuff historically to happen in one year. And, uh, and, and, and the movie, I mean, the movie itself would, would just be enough, but then you put all the stuff that I just mentioned on top of that. I mean, Jim was a part of all of that. It's crazy. And, yeah. um, so, uh, I can't wait to hear what he had to say. And um, I really feel like Jim was a, a big part of um, what was going on. And, you know, Frank, too. I mean, Frank was, like, always writing, right? Uh-huh. And and the stuff that he was writing was with that that, that, that band in mind, like Billy the Mountain, stuff like that. You uh-huh. know, that, that he had that band in mind when he was doing all that shit. And uh, it worked well. It was like it, everything just kind of fit fit together really well. But you know, not not anything against Jeff Simmons. It's just that uh, he didn't stay long enough to really kind of gel in that group. Yeah, put a stamp on it, really. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they, you know, and and Jim has one of the great, in my opinion, one of the great voices in uh, you know in in Zappa history. Because uh, so you low. know, he's just he he's he's absolutely perfect for what Frank gave him to do. I think this box set will um, entertain everybody that, you know, is probably so used to just the Fillmore uh, East album on its own. Oh, which sure. Is such an iconic album. But it I is. think when they listen to this release, they'll actually respect more of what this band was capable of, what this time period was like for Frank. And, um, you know, with the inclusion of the John Lennon thing and uh, and the Rainbow Show the Rainbow. and everything. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really going to turn turn people on to what's what was happening at that time like between the 88 box what you did for that band and what you're doing for the 71 band this is the ultimate restoration project it's like it's a reimagining of these bands it's true and but what's amazing is that it's all there on the original tapes which is so weird you know it's all there so it's like wow the, the the approach that craig parker adams and i always take is a is an archival approach. We don't mm-hmm. want to be the next team that has their, you know, agenda applied to these tapes, you know, yes. like like, you know, that was an agenda that happened between Frank and Toby Foster during those mixing times in 1971 at Whitney. What we're doing is just bringing out what's there already, you know, and just making it sound well, you 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 hear what we're doing. I mean, it's yeah. sure it's very faithful to what's there already. So yeah, yeah. It's a purist approach, kind yes, of. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I like. I prefer that approach because warts and all, you know, as Frank said. I what you see is what you get. I like that, you know. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. All right, uh, Phil. Thank you so much, man, for sure. making the time. And thank Scott, you, Philip. Thank sure. you, Scott. Of and, course. Uh, I'm going to stop recording now. Stop recording, everyone. Yes, I will stop too. Zappacast, the official Frank Zappa podcast, is made in cooperation with the Zappa Trust. For the latest Zappa news and more, visit Zappa.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at, at Zappa. Zappacast is created by and is hosted by Scott Parker. Our producer is Phil Circus. Special thanks to Joe Vaultmeister Travers and everyone at the Zappa Trust and Zappa Records. This podcast is copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Trust. All rights reserved, and until next time, good night, good night boys, boys and girls. girls.